deep within us and find a resting place that brings great fruit that you might be glorified and we bless. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 6. Hebrews in chapter 6, I want to read uh, verses 9 through 12. Hebrews in chapter 6, please. Hear the word of God. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith, faith and patience inherit the promises. Now remember, our earnestness as we take up these passages one after the other uh, is not an academic pursuit, but a spiritual and a practical one. Uh, I read as we entered this morning as what we call the announcement from Second Peter in chapter 1. Those verses were these. His, it is God's, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, we are here and we're listening uh, because God speaks through his word. And by way of this knowledge, power, very power of God, we're able to partake of the divine nature. Now, by that, we do not mean that we change from being human to being divine. It isn't a move from humanness to godness, but rather a transformation from ungodliness to godliness. That is, when we partake of the divine nature, it means that his character is being built within us. And so, the seriousness, the significance of our coming together, what's at stake when we come to listen to God is this godliness, this partaking of the very character, the very nature of God in us. And so we come to do that, to be transformed, to have this spiritual formation, if you will, take place in us from this word and on, then from it. Now, we're doing that as we come to engage with a group called Hebrews, a group of Jewish believers, those who came from Judaism into Christianity. And that seems like a very natural transition to us, a very easy transition for us since the New Testament completes, the New Testament fulfills, the old Christ came as the Old Testament Messiah and all that. We see the uh, integration between the two, the continuity from old to new. But you remember that when Jesus came, it was very upsetting uh, in the hierarchy, the religious uh, Judaism, um, so much so that they killed him. Uh, they killed him for blasphemy. They killed him for um, saying that he was the Christ, the Messiah of God. They killed him uh, because he, as he said, uh, being a man, made himself out to be God. They killed him 
uh, because he claimed to be God with us. And so you, you see the hostility there. Thus, many who became Christians out of Judaism, who flowed right one to the other and saw, believed in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, came up against tremendous hostility from their own countrymen. These Hebrews, no doubt, uh, being just that. One of the defining statements about them we find in Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 32, where the author of Hebrews writes, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So they experienced this kind of hostility because of the name of Christ. Verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, so some of them who had taken the name of Christ must have been imprisoned because of their faith. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, meaning that they loved these for Christ's sake, and they helped them even though it meant that they lost all their stuff. But they did it with great joy, because they loved Christ, and they loved these very ones. And so we can see the transformation spiritually taking place in the context of their lives. What troubles the author of Hebrews, this is all a review, I'm doing this for you students who've been gone all summer. I know you feel very comfortable. No, I'm still in Hebrews. Uh, and only chapter 6. So for those, my dear wife took, a, took a, some kind of a something, I want to say bets, but I can't say that in church, on how long it would take me to get through Hebrews, so I don't know what your that is, but anyway, uh, but I'm still here in chapter 6. Um, but just to catch you up, we know that, that, that what troubles him is that he's seeing some drifting. That, that that defined them, he said, in former days, right after you believe, that's the zeal that you had. But, but now he sees them drifting. In fact, he, sing, he thinks that some are in danger of neglecting this great salvation. And his concern then is if they neglect it, then there is no escape. That is, there's no escape from a righteous, holy God. For their only hope is in Christ. And so if they neglect the salvation, then they're in big trouble. How He not only says that, but in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. He's saying, take care, you see. Don't allow your heart to become hardened against this which at one time seemed so great. Because it will be to your destruction. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you see the warnings. You see the trouble. You see the danger. And so what we said as we very carefully read through this book of Hebrews is the purpose for which it has been written, the reason that this author took up this task to write this message was because he wanted them not to fall away, but to move on to maturity. I mean, that's his goal, that's his hope. He's, he's writing all of this so that they'll move on to maturity. In chapter 6, he says, Therefore, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He wants them to move on. And maturity for him is this spiritual transformation. It's this knowledge of God and the power of God at work in him, wherein they may partake of this divine nature and grow up. And he puts it, for instance, in chapter 5 and verse 14 like this. He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying, what I want you to be is wise in the things of God. I want you to be wise so that you can see what is good and see what is evil, that you can distinguish between the two, that you're not confused. 
that's very similar to, way, to the way Paul puts um, this maturity in Romans in chapter 12, for instance, in verse 2, when he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he wants to move them on to maturity. He doesn't want them to neglect it. He doesn't want them to drift. He wants them, in a sense, to recapture the zeal that they had in the beginning, which was to be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ and those Christ loves. That's his purpose. Now his theme, what he writes about in order to get them to maturity is Jesus. You know, Jesus is the answer to every question that we ever ask in Christianity. You know that. And so, he's, over and over again, his emphasis is consider Jesus, consider Christ, think about him. And so, we've understood that as we've moved along. We've been considering Jesus and his superiority to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to the priests of old, and all that. So, we know his purpose, we know his theme. In these verses, we get a glimpse of his heart. Notice, in verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way. Now, if you were here last week, you know, if you've been reading through Hebrews with us, you know the way in which he's been speaking. He just penned, perhaps, the scariest verses in all of Scripture. In chapter 6 and verse 4, he writes, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I'm not going to tell you what I told them last week about that passage. You have to get that tape. 1995, we threw on the knives. But... Um, Actually, you can get them on the website for nothing. But uh, um, it's a very scary passage. And so he says, though we speak in this way. He's been saying some very hard things to them. And I don't know how it is when you sit and read the scripture, how these hard things flow into you and over you. I mean, there are times... When we read the scripture, you may think God is against you by what is being said. You may feel like these words are very, very harsh, very even judgmental. Uh, a wrathful God. A God that says if this fit this category, there's no way that you're going to be able to repent and come back. This, this danger of, of neglecting and, and drifting and all of these things so that you won't escape uh, if you neglect this great salvation that ne- Escape this wrath of God. And I don't know how you feel, how that affects you as you read that. But the author of Hebrews is saying to them, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. That's a very significant word at this point in time. He's saying, I'm saying these things to you because I love you. And the way that we're to receive these warnings is in love. When I approached uh, preaching through the book of Hebrews, I must be honest with you, since I've read it a few hundred times, I'm sure, over the course of my life, and taught through it and so forth and so on, I knew it's coming. I know it's coming. I know it's in this book. And I know the warnings. And and my first thought was, oh, I don't want to go there. But we have to go there, obviously, because it's in the Bible. But we need to receive these things uh, as coming from love. Because, you see, he's so compelled to warn them because he knows the danger. And he's compelled to warn them because he knows the danger because he loves them. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't be compelled 
to warn them. See, we get this sense through the Scripture and through the writers of Scripture that God places within them a, a real love. Not only for Christ, but His people. And we find that evidenced here because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit allows the author of Hebrews to, to call them beloved, ones He loves. Thus, it must be true. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have ever let those words be penned had it not been true. He must love them. And so that's what he's doing. He's loving them by warning them, much in the same way a professor will warn a student he or she cares about by saying, listen, you're not doing well. I need to tell you that. Or how your doctor will warn you about your life because he cares or she cares about you, I trust. So the author of Hebrews cares. We, we find this caring very often uh, throughout Scripture. For instance, in Romans and chapter 9, the first opening verses of that chapter from uh, the Apostle Paul, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh. There's this movement in Paul of love for his countrymen that's saying, if it were up to me, and this could possibly work, I would be willing to go to hell on your behalf that you might be saved. That's how I love you. Now that's amazing that he would say, I wish myself to be cut off for your sake. And then in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, and verse 28, the Apostle writes of all of the things that he's experienced in his life concerning uh, these people, concerning ministry. And he talks about the fact that he's been beaten, uh, um, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, uh, he's been left for dead, uh, he's been starving, uh, he's had sleepless nights. And then he ends this by simply saying, and apart from other things like that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Saying there is in me this compulsion to love the church. And so I'm willing to be shipwrecked and to be beaten and all of these things because of this compulsion I have within me that empowers me, that propels me to love. He puts it like this when he writes to the church in Galatia, in Galatians, in chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I've never given birth. And I've seen it happen. And I'm happy I've never given birth. But my suspicion is, from what I've observed, that it can be quite painful. And Paul is saying, That's how I feel. Uh, but I'm willing to go through that. To see Christ formed in you. You see, there's this compulsion. And perhaps, in all the things that we read in these days, I must confess to you, it saddens me deeply to see books titled um, How My Faith Survived the Church or another one, Pastors That Abuse. And I see those titles and it saddens me deeply because I realize that it's very possible for pastors, ministers, to abuse their place in the lives of people by a kind of a harsh legalism, 
placing burdens upon people to live out that they surely can't. Um, perhaps even drawing attention to oneself to such a degree that you can't tell whether the church is about Jesus or about the pastor. Uh, sadly, you, you can tell. Or even worse, when pastors abuse their relationships with parishioners and all of that. But a great, great danger. And one for which the author of Hebrews and the apostles help us with tremendously. The great danger is simply not to love enough that you're unwilling to tell the truth. But the author of Hebrews loves enough so that he's willing to tell the truth, you see. And we need to listen. And we need to listen as those who are hearing from one loved, not criticized, loved, not harassed, loved. And so I commend that to you as we move our way through. And the love that he has for them is, is, is reflected in this passage in verse 11. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, what he wants to see is that the, this group of people receives all that God promises. I remember uh, years ago now when I was in a seminary class uh, an older minister he's probably about the age I am now um, an older minister came uh, to share in one of our classes and uh, the class assignment had been to, to construct goals for your church and all of that sort of thing that students do and throw away, but fortunately. But, uh, uh, so we asked him, you know, what's your objective? What's your goal? And we had come up with some really intricate, incredible goals that only young men can think up. And, um, and so he looked very quietly and he said, my goal is that I'll see in heaven every person who comes through my church. We wrote that down and said, and, you know, come on, that's so simple. But that was it, you see. And, and what he desires, the author of Hebrews, is that they would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But to do that, you see, to be able to sustain that kind of life, he knows that they're going to need something he entitles the full assurance of faith. Notice verse 11 again. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So what I want to do today, this, is this, this passage is going to take at least today and next Sunday, maybe one more. But what I want to do today is lay out in a very general way this idea of the full assurance of hope. He desires it for them. Since he desires it for them, it must be that God desires a full assurance of hope for us. So I want us to take a look at that and to see what that is. Then, uh, after we work on that a bit today, uh, next Sunday we'll come back and plug this into the context of these verses. All right. So, so my thinking is something like this. Today, what I'd like to do is to be able to uh, lay out what this means, what it would mean for a person to have full assurance of hope. Um, then, and I'm going to have to edit this as I go, so I may not get to this second point. I may not make this second point, but if I don't, I'll pick it up next week. And then what is the value 
of having full assurance of hope. And then thirdly, and this is the most important thing for the day, uh, what is the basis or the foundation for such an assurance? Okay, those three things I'd like to get to. My suspicion is I'm only going to get to one in three, uh, trying to lay out what uh, this, unless you want to stay to one. That's what I thought. Um, <laughs> got to page 14 in my single space manuscript and thought, this is probably three sermons, so consider yourself fortunate that God woke me up at that point. Um, First point then, uh, what does it mean to have this full assurance of hope? All right? Now, assurance means, and certainly if we add full assurance means, that you're certain of something. To be fully, completely assured means that you're certain that something is going to come to pass. It's something in the future or you don't need assurance about it. If it's already happened, you don't need assurance. You have the fact of it. So you're looking ahead. You're anticipating something to occur and you're saying that it is going to occur. I have the full assurance. I'm absolutely certain that it's going to come to pass. That's full assurance. So what he's after here is for them to have the full assurance of something. And the something is hope. He wants them to have the full assurance of hope. Now hope is the anticipation of something good. It's the anticipation of something good. We don't hope for things that are bad. We may expect things that are bad, but we don't hope for them. Like, for instance, last night... uh, Saturday nights, I try to go to bed uh, by, by 10.30 because I get up at 4 on Sunday, so I want to get a little bit of sleep. And um, it was the seventh inning. The Royals were up 2-1. to one. Now, my hope was that they would win. My expectation was that they would lose. Um, they won, and so hope against hope. Uh, but now... I don't know who the Yankees were playing, but my hope was that they would lose. Uh, my expectation was that they would win, you see. So it just depends on what you think is good and what you think is bad. But hope is the anticipation, you see, of something good to come. So what he wants of them is this. Certainty of good that will come. The full assurance of hope. And the good that will come, I believe, is defined for us in verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You see, there are things that accompany a person's life that do not belong to salvation. And that's not his hope. What he's hoping is, and what he wants them to be certain of, is in the course of their lives, that will accompany their lives, are things that belong to salvation. Things like he expresses in the previous couple of verses, a good crop, a good harvest of righteousness, uh, love for others, most certainly forgiveness of sins, most certainly belonging to God, most certainly justification, most certainly a growing up to maturity, most certainly glorification, that is, upon death being received into the very uh, kingdom, the very heaven of God. See, what he's hoping for them, what he desires for them, is that they have this certainty that they belong to God, certainty that they're believers, certainty that they're Christians, certainty that they'll go to heaven when they die, certainty that they have eternal life. That's what he's after. Now, there's great benefit uh, for us in having such a certainty. Uh, let me just quickly describe them. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the great confessions of, um, of uh, Christendom, written in the 17th century, puts it like this. 
the blessing, the value of this full assurance of faith exists so that his heart, a person's heart, may be filled with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, with love and thankfulness to God, and with strength and cheerfulness of obedience. He says, listen, if, if you have this full assurance, then you'll live in peace, because you'll know that God is for you. You'll live in joy, because you know that regardless of the circumstances today, a time really will come, and it really will come, and it really is certain, and it really is for you, where there'll be no more tears, no more trials, no more pain, no more persecution, no more hunger, no more injustice, no more of anything that, that creates in us uh, sadness. That all the, will be joy. So we can anticipate that, and if we're certain of that, we can live in that joy. But, but imagine if you're not. Imagine if you're wondering. Imagine if you're questioning if this is really going to happen, this eternal life for you. Then when times get difficult and you're not certain then can you live in the present in joy, anticipating this good to come? And he says we live in, in thankfulness. Certainly we do, because it comes from God, that which is to come. And we can live our lives in thankfulness, worshiping, witnessing. How can we tell others of this great eternal life if we're not certain that it's really real? And certainly obedience. Because you see, and this is worth more than everything. So regardless of the sacrifice, we'll continue to follow, continue to obey, continue to march on to maturity with Christ because this is all that matters. So full assurance of hope is very important. Now, the guts of what I want to say today. That is, <clears throat> I want to lay out the foundation, the basis, the ground for this full assurance of hope. And to do that, I need to distinguish between two, two things, two concepts. One is the objective certainty of our hope, and the other is the subjective experience of this hope. Right? See the difference between the two? One is objective, one is subjective. The objective certainty of this hope, the other is the subjective experience of it. Now, the reason I make that distinguish is because it's possible that our hope is secure and at the same time that we won't experience that. We won't know that assurance. For instance, let me give you an example. All examples are contrived, uh, so go with me on this one. Let's say that there is a man who marries a woman and let's say he's of such pure heart, this man, I've always already lost half of you. Um, the men are going, okay, I can go with that. Man of pure heart, good, gotcha. Women are going, I don't think that's going to work. Uh, but just go with me, I'm a guy. Just go with me on this illustration. Just... Now, he's a, a man, he marries this woman, and his heart is so pure, they can honestly say, and with great truth, that nothing you do will cause me not to love you. That, that you're perfectly secure in my love. Nothing you do will cause, cause me to stop loving you. I'm just going to love you forever. Okay? Let's say that's really true. There's security there. I mean, it's... Now, the second question is, will she be able to live in the assurance of his love? 
Will she be able to live in the security of that? And you say, well, she ought to be able to. He said so, and we know he's a man pure in heart. Therefore, sure, this is the case, but, but maybe not. For instance, it may be that some of his friends come and tell her lies about him, like he really isn't a man of his word, and let's say she believes them. That even though he is a man of his word, and even though she is secure in his love, she won't be able to experience that assurance because she's believing a lie. Or let's say she has a particular temperament, and we all have different temperaments. Some of us are, are, are pessimists by nature. Some of us are more optimistic. Some of us find it easier to trust. Others less easy to trust. We have temperaments. We go through various situations in life where we have ups and downs. And let's simply say that she's a person who has a temperament. And I'm not saying that women are temperamental. I have to go home with one, not a temperamental one. <laughs> But the playing field's a little more even. I dropped one off at college yesterday, so it's down to, you know, just one-on-one. But um, my son went off to college. It really changed the balance in our whole house. But anyway, that's my problem. Um, I don't even know what point I'm trying to make now. I got so frustrated. But let's say that she has a particular temperament that makes it difficult for her to trust him. So though she be secure, she may not be able to live and the assurance of that love. And it, it may be, too, that she finds at certain occasions her own heart wandering. And she begins to think, how could he love me if I'm not faithful to him? And thus she may not be able to live in the security of that. My point is only this, to enable us to know that the security and the experience of it, the objective reality of the certainty and the subjective experience of it can be different. And that certainly may well be true in the context of our Christian lives. So today, in the time that I have left, half an hour, the, um, just a little while, um, don't worry about 12 o'clock. It means nothing. Um, 12.15 is a much, much better looking time. But what I want to do uh, in these remaining few minutes is to lay out for you the ground uh, of this security, all right? And there are three parts to this, three things which ground us uh, objectively in the secure promises of God, the secure love of God. And by that I'm saying that yes, there is grounds for us to believe that if one is born again and professes faith in Christ, Therefore, they want to secure in that, whether you feel it or not, whether you're able to live in it or not. Next week, we'll get into the reasons why you may not be able to live in that certainty. But today, I want to lay this ground. Three parts to this. Number one part, most significant, is how it is that God saves us, how it is that we're saved. Number two, the very character of God. And number three, the promises of God. Right? Those three things. One, how God has saved us. Number two the character of God, and number three, the promises of God. Quickly, turn to what I read for our call to worship this morning, Ephesians in chapter 1. Ephesians in chapter 1. Now, as I read this, while all of the Bible is holy ground, uh, you need to, to know that this particular passage, verses 3 through 14, 
could never have been discerned by us had it not been revealed by God. This is, this is stuff that's mysterious. Uh, there's a sense in which we probably should all take off our shoes at this point uh, in recognition uh, of the holiness of this word. It's, it's as if the apostle blurted it out. It's one long sentence uh, in Greek. Um, but it's there that we might worship God and live, I think, in the certainty, objective certainty, of salvation. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That little expression, in Christ, is of great significance. Uh, To be in Christ means that you belong to Him. It means that He is the one who represents you before God. The Bible makes a distinction about being in Adam and being in Christ. To be in Adam means that you're attached to Him in such a way that He is your representative before God. Now, the great danger, difficulty, distress of being in Adam is that He sinned. The good news about being in Christ is that he obeyed, right? So that's a very important thing to understand, to be in Christ. Now, the, therefore, it's of great advantage for a person to be in Christ. Could you imagine being in Christ, thus secure, because he's the one who represents us before God? How more secure could a person be before God than to be tucked away, if you will, in Christ? So let's see how you get in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Now, that's why I said this is very holy ground. It's very mysterious. I mean, how would we know that? And and how does God arrive at that? And how does all that work? We don't simply know that. We don't know. It's just declared to us as, as truth. So we're reading, we're speaking way beyond ourselves when we read sentences like this. So we need to grab a hold of them and not go beyond them, not ask questions, not ask in the passage, but simply receive them and say, okay. Oh, and, and just let your body shake a bit. When I read this, my little body shakes a little bit because I think about the fact that before the creation of the world, God said... I'm going to put Bill in Christ. And he said, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless uh, before him. That's, you see, the only way I'm going to be able to be holy and blameless before God is that if I'm hidden deep in Christ, really deep that he really does cover me, because I'm not inherently holy and blameless. Ask anybody who knows me. Spend the afternoon with me, and you'll leave going, he's not holy and blameless. But in Christ, you see, I am. And so, mysteriously, amazingly, graciously, mercifully, God says, I'm going to take Bill and put him in Christ. And he did that before I was born, uh, before the world was made. He did it. 
that I might be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. That's a big P word, you know, that everybody gets nervous about. Uh, he predestined us, which means he laid out our destiny because we're now in Christ, and so that puts us on a particular path, a particular destiny that he knew beforehand, so it's predestined, as opposed to post-destined, which I think is a word that makes no sense. Um, predestined, you see? Uh, in a particular way. Now, God has every right to predestine, doesn't he? He has every right, because he's God, to work and intervene in such a way that he puts us on a particular path. And this is a good path, so we shouldn't rebel against this. We should go, whew. Chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in love. So it was in love. It wasn't just in apathy or just because he had nothing better to do for the day. In love. He cast his love upon us to put us on this destiny that we would be adopted as his children, adopted as his sons. Which is exactly what I need. I need that. I need to be in Christ so that I can be holy and blameless before God. And I need uh, to be put on this path by him so that I could be adopted into his family. Now, feel, if you're a believer in Christ, feel how secure that makes you. I mean, where else could you be more secure other than in Christ, on a path, Holy and blameless before him because you're in Christ on a path to be adopted as his children all before the foundations of the world, meaning it didn't depend on you, but it was a work of God. See, that's the certainty. That's the security. That's the objective reality of this certainty. And so it all depends upon Christ, you see. And so the question is, well, can Christ aptly represent me before God? Can he get it done? Well, on the one hand, he lived a perfect life. Therefore, in him, I'm holy and blameless. On the other hand, he died for the sins of sinners. And the way that uh, it's put in the scripture in various places, uh, and the author of Hebrews puts it this way, uh, in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 17, he says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that... He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I bet I've defined the word propitiation a hundred times, at least, in the last 16 years. It's a great Bible word. It's a great word for our own souls. Um, when, when my son was young, we used to play propitiation instead of horse uh, on the driveway. Uh, because it gave me opportunities to, to talk about propitiation. We just, he liked it because it took the game a long time to play. Uh, I liked it because I got to explain all these wonderful theological concepts. We played infralapsarianism once. Uh, but, but, but propitiation means that an act has taken place that will satisfy, that will extinguish that will exhaust the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. And in the death of Jesus, you see, His blood satisfied the wrath of God for those He represented, for those in Him. How much more secure could we be than before the foundations of the world that God chose me people, those who would believe he chose people to be in Christ 
and then Christ represented them perfectly before him in his obedience and in his death so that the wrath of God would be completely satisfied, completely exhausted, completely extinguished for those in Christ. And the only thing then left in the context of this coming full circle is for us to believe. And that's the work you see of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit then who comes and gives new life the way the prophet Ezekiel described it was that the Spirit would come and it would take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. The way that Jesus put it is that the Holy Spirit would come and give us new birth that would be born of the Spirit. The way the Apostle Paul puts it is that we become new creatures in Christ. Transformed, you see, to be new creations. And as such, therefore, you see, it is this radical change of heart that enables us to believe, that enables us to turn from our sin, which we can't naturally do because we're naturally sinners. And so we turn from our sin and we're enabled to believe. And he said, now, consider Jesus. His success isn't contingent upon us. Our eternal life is contingent upon him. So it isn't trusting in ourselves, it's trusting in him. That before the creation of the world, we were in him. Not by our own doing, but by God's. And you say, I don't understand that. Okay. Me either. Just declaring it to you. I wasn't there. I can't remember yesterday, let alone before the creation of the world. He did that in Christ. Christ rightly, successfully represents us in his life and in his death. And then the Spirit comes and makes it real in the context of our lives. That's why my favorite expression in the whole it's not in the Bible. In the whole English language is God saves sinners. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For the creation of the world, Father chooses. The Son comes and achieves it, succeeds it, wins it. And the Spirit comes and applies it. And so you see, we're left then to realize where could we be more secure other than in Christ? That's the objective reality. And the second prong of this is, is in the very character of God. And all we need to say about that is to ask the question, uh, is God faithful to his word? Can God accomplish that which he puts out to accomplish? And if the answer is yes, then we can trust him. And how could it be no? And then the third part of all of this is the very promises of God. Let me read to you just a few. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into, judge, he, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Something has happened. Something radical has happened in a believer's life. They pass from death to life. John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is saying, listen, before the foundation of the world, God chose those who will be in Christ. He gave them to me. And so I've come to get them. 
And so he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Uh, for this is the will of my Father. John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How much more secure can we be than to be in the hand of Jesus? And then he goes on to say, my Father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now how did you get in Jesus' hand? You could say, I believed. Right. Why did you believe? Uh, Because the Holy Spirit gave me new life. Why did the Holy Spirit give you new life? Because Jesus died for my sins. Why did Jesus die for your sins? Because I was in him. Well, how did you get in him? The answer to that question makes you shiver. Romans chapter 5. But God chose his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, something happened in the death of his son. Reconciliation. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew. When God foreknows, uh, that knowing is, as we say, in a biblical way, he foreloves. He loves beforehand. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The good news of that string is that there's no break in any of that. He says, oh, there's real security right here. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, and then just in case he misses anything, he puts, nor anything else in all creation. So you can make the list as long as you want. But the next sentence still holds. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I have 50 more. I won't read them. I'll put them on the web or something. But The scripture teaches that there is an objective Security for believers. Now, we're done for today, so here's what I want you to think about this week. I want you to ask yourself these questions. First of all, ask yourself this question. Do I believe in Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus? Now, now don't hold yourself to a standard of perfection of belief. You can always say none of us believes perfectly. You, you know my point. Do I believe in Jesus? Second one, this. What does that mean? Let me give you the answer. It means that I'm secure. Why does it mean that I'm secure? 
Well, it means I'm secure because if I believe, it means the Holy Spirit has moved on my heart to change my heart. And if the Holy Spirit has moved on my heart to change my heart, it means that Jesus died for my sins. And if Jesus died for my sins, it means that I'm in Him. And if I'm in Him, it means that before the creation of the world, God put me there. I don't have an explanation for that. Only a declaration. First question, do I believe? Second question, what does that mean? Third question, am I secure, therefore? Fourth question, do I experience the assurance that I have eternal life? Do I believe in Jesus? What's that mean? Am I, am I secure, therefore? Do I experience the assurance? Let's pray. Father, I don't know really what to even say, God, other than thank you. I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> I remind you of our time together this evening with our youth group at 7 to hear about their missions trip. So please uh, come. Elders are available to pray in the office area. Please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction may strike you as odd this week. It will fit perfectly next week. But it's from the passage which I read, which is, I shall inherit the promises. Hallelujah. To inherit the promises of God means that you do believe in Jesus and you can work backwards from there. I shall inherit the promises. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before His glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said... I shall inherit the promises. Hallelujah.